This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Our hot question of the day today takes a look at federal politics, and there's a meeting going on in Ottawa this morning on, on the Hill, essentially. And Andrew Scheer is going to be meeting with his caucus today for the first time since the federal election. And polls, including some that are out today, show that even conservative voters are pretty divided, but a large number of them, almost half in some regions, believe that he needs to go and that he should not stay on as leader of the party. So we want to know for our hot question of the day, what do you think about that? Do you think, yeah, listen, he had his chance, he blew it, he's got to go? Or do you think, no, give him one more chance? Where do you come down on this? So go to at CKNW, you can go to at Simisera980, they're both on Twitter, you can cast your vote there, we've got our poll up and running now, and boy, it's active already. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com, and use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, that's 331-2899. Uh, right now, and it's very early, it's about a l- little bit less than 100 votes that we've got right now on the hot question of the day, uh, but it is 78% of people who believe that, yeah, Sheer must go, that he should not stay on as leader of the party, and 22% who believe that he should get one more chance. But you know what? As I said, very early going. Cast your vote. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. Still ahead, we are going to be speaking with our Ottawa Bureau Chief, actually, for Global News and host of the West Block, Mercedes Stevenson. There is a whole host of media camped outside the room where the Conservative Caucus is meeting today. And it is expected that essentially one or two things could happen. He could get a show of support. Or there could be enough rumblings that there could be some kind of a leadership review. And given all the stories that have been in the media in the last week or so of of conservative insiders, people behind the scenes publicly grumbling in that way, uh, not sure this is going to go as smoothly as perhaps the conservative leader would like it to. Well, today, there is a lot of discussion about what is going on in Ottawa. I know it's been a couple of quiet weeks, right, since the federal election, uh, but it certainly hasn't been quiet behind the scenes, particularly when it comes for the Conservative Party. Leader Andrew Scheer will be meeting with his caucus for the first time since the election today. And there is word that many Conservatives are frustrated with the election results and with what they saw to be a poorly executed campaign without enough policy to to motivate voters, especially in light of the fact that it did seem like Justin Trudeau and the Liberals were pretty wounded at that point. So what's going to happen today? What is the mood like? Let's find out. Joining us now is Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News and host of the West Block. Mercedes, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So how tense is this meeting today or are the Conservatives putting on a good face? Well, that's a great question. Certainly there's tension going into it because this is really an accountability meeting for members of caucus, uh, senators, the MPs, to be able to say, hey, what happened? Why weren't you able to not only not win this, but to not get seats in some of the key areas that they really seem to think they were going to be able to pull off, like around the 905, lower mainland of BC and Quebec. Um, and so there's a real battle here and a question about whether or not Andrew Shear can hang on as leader, because they're going to get a presentation and find out what happened, sort of the debrief on, on what they think went wrong. And the question is, will that satisfy these MPs and senators? Will it convince them uh, to leave Andrew Shear in place? Or are they going to look for a new leader. It would be pretty astonishing if they did that today, but uh, it certainly is a possibility. Um, they, there's something called the Reform Act that the Conservatives introduced, and under it, when caucus comes back from an election, they get to vote on several things, and one of those things is whether or not caucus should have the power to vote the leader out. In the past, they voted no. This time, they may vote yes, but there's still a tension there because a lot of MPs feel it's up to the grassroots to decide what to do with the leader. However, there's others who say, you know what, the time is now. Sheer has to go. We need to take control here. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see if what these MPs and senators and caucus hears in this meeting convince them to back down or if they perhaps lose some of their nerve when they're in the same room as Andrew Shear, mm. uh, or whether they push ahead and start saying, look, it's time to start reconsidering our options. Right, because there's been a lot of grumbling behind the scenes. It seems like it's been story after story of, you know, conservative insiders not happy with Shear's leadership. Well, exactly. It's 
it's uh, there's a lot of frustration in feeling that um, he wasn't able to explain his social conservative values in a way that made them non-threatening to people, in a way where they weren't worried he was going to legislate. They think that they may need somebody who's more progressive, somebody who's more in touch with urban centers. Uh, others are saying, look, don't just blame Andrew Scheer. It was the campaign. The way the campaign was run was really the playbook from the 2015 campaign. Again, it didn't work in 2015. It definitely didn't work in 2019. Uh, it was too insular. But at the end of the day, it's up to the leader to make the call on that. So, uh if he's going to stay on, one of the questions is, does he have to make some pretty significant changes to his staff to appease people in the caucus? I've heard that some members of caucus are saying either the chief of staff goes right. uh, or they will start the pushback. So uh, there's still a lot of ways that this could unfold, but there's no doubt about two things. Yeah. Number one, the conservatives are unhappy. Number two, they have to show a way to go forward. Right. I was reading about that. So I guess what's different here is that Andrew Scheer has not really offered up a head, essentially, to appease people who are unhappy with those election results to say, OK, this is the sacrificial you know, lamb in this particular case. Nothing like that's actually happened. Exactly. It's still the same team. There's still a lot of pressure. Uh, for Marc Andre, who is his chief of staff, to be pushed out. People who, who haven't liked him since day one, they felt that um, the way he treats members of caucus is is not as respectful as they would like. Um, they've criticized him as somebody who, who has a temper. Um, Sheer kept him on. He was originally the deputy chief of staff, and he became the chief of staff uh, after they let the previous actual chief of staff go, and they never really looked for a new one. That left a lot of MPs, especially Quebec MPs, where the chief of staff uh, had a lot of influence, unhappy. So so there's sort of the question of, is someone going to offer themselves up today and say, I'll take the mm. hit? Uh, or are they going to continue to keep the same people? And it's, it's harder if you keep all the same people, because if they don't have that sacrificial lamb, fair or unfair, people feel there's been no accountability for the election loss. And will that continue to reflect back on Sheer? There's also the question of, does Sheer want to stay on and fight? Uh, and that's something he's going to have to decide after he reads the temperature in that room today and gets a sense of just how deep and how serious that unrest might be. Right. And Mercedes, don't you think like clearly there were questions that kept coming up for the Conservative Party during the election campaign that repeatedly they just didn't seem to have a good answer for? How can that be allowed to continue? Yeah, and that, that was a big point of frustration, and it was something I heard from a lot of conservatives during the campaign. They would say, you know, how are they unprepared for the questions about abortion? How are they unprepared for the questions about gay marriage? Uh, why did he still have his American citizenship right up until before the rick dropped? Why yeah. was that not dealt with two years ago? There was a feeling that there was not adequate planning and that obvious questions they didn't have a convincing line on it. I talked to one uh, former senior Harper staffer who didn't want to be identified, and he said, look, uh, Stephen Harper was not Mr. Socially Liberal. He, there was a lot of people who were suspicious of was he a SOCON, but he had an effective line on it. He'd mm -hmm. simply say, you know, there's extreme views on both sides. I'm somewhere in the middle. My, my personal views do not affect my policy. Why couldn't this guy have thought of something that explains that those were his personal views but not his public views? And they kept dragging it out and dragging it out and then kind of like pulling teeth. They'd finally say, okay, yes, you know, I personally believe this, but I'm not um, – I, I won't do it professionally. When you do it that late in the campaign and you haven't got – um, a repeated message that you're able to drive home, a lot right. of people just felt like that maybe didn't resonate for them. Right. I'm guessing there's a lot of media camped outside the room where the caucus is going to be meeting. There are. <laughs> okay. What is the timeline Quite like for this? Yeah. Well, uh, we don't know the exact timeline. I mean, they went in at one. I imagine that uh, it's going to be at least an hour. Caucus meetings are, are usually at least that. Um, this one could be substantially longer, de depending on what the debates in the room are like, how many people might want to have an opportunity to speak, whether or not they're granted that opportunity. You know, the, this is a bit of an airing of the grievances. Mm. And, um, you know, you, you on the one hand, maybe don't want to allow it to get out of control. But if people don't feel that they're getting the chance to, to make their frustrations heard to the leader and his staff very directly, uh, cutting that off prematurely could lead to bigger problems for Andrew Scheer. So uh, it'll be very interesting to get a sense of people inside that room, what's going on, and when they come out. And I've talked to a few people who said, you know, I'm going to wait and see what he has to say. Uh, I'm not happy, but I'm, I'm willing to at least see, is there an accountability? But if they feel that there's not an accountability, that's when you're really going to see that frustration start to kick in and maybe turn into more than just frustration. How would you characterize Andrew Scheer's leadership at this point? Would you, is it shaky, do you think? Does he have support in caucus? 
He does have some support. In fact, he has some very strong support uh, from other social conservatives and from folks out around the prairies, especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, Now, that isn't where he needs the support from to win the next election, and that's what even some MPs from that area will tell you is the problem. A lot of people who are pro-Andrew Scheer are saying, look, this is just people blaming him unfairly. Um, We've not seen a majority government unseated in this country after a single term, but for two previous occasions in Canadian history, the most recent of which was in the 1930s. Uh, it would have been highly abnormal for him to win. This is just people angry um, and, and not accepting that right. th- there was no way to win this election. So he does certainly have support. And, and the question will be how much, though, and how much of it is in the grassroots. Because caucus has the ability to trigger a leadership review, but they're not going to want to do that unless they're sure that the grassroots are behind them. Right. And what about the other parties here? Like, what, I know we haven't heard at all from, uh, you know, the Liberals or from Justin Trudeau since the election happened. Like, what's been going on? Yeah, I'm sure that they are uh, quite happy to allow the Conservatives to occupy the spotlight right now while they figure out what the heck is going on. Um, They're uh, working closely with their transition team. We've seen them going in and out of uh, the Prime Minister's office. Uh, One of the names on that transition team, Anne McClellan, who's been brought in to talk about what's going on with the West. Of course, she knows the West quite well, especially Alberta. Uh, Former Solicitor General for the Government, Attorney General, pardon me, for the Government of Canada. So she knows a lot about that, and she's she's very strong on the security side and the international side as well. trying to figure out uh, how do they work with the other party leaders and Justin Trudeau is going to start meeting with other party leaders as of next week uh, to figure out if they have common ground on certain issues and uh, they really have to figure out I mean, this is a very different parliament and their style of doing politics under a majority government to ramrod things through um, and to sort of take sometimes a holier than thou approach is mm-hmm. not going to fly with a minority government. They're going to have to find a way to build bridges and find allies uh, and so I think right now they're trying to find how they get a voice in there for Alberta as Saskatchewan, how they reach out and strategize, what do they prioritize going forward, um, and, and what do the numbers look like, frankly, at the end of the day? Because they promised they weren't going to go past a certain point in deficit, uh, but it's not clear that that's going to remain the case now that there's a minority government, and the NDP have said their priority is pharmacare. So uh, how do you figure that out? Do you go with pharmacare with the NDP and yeah. Trans Mountain with the Tories? Um, lots of questions here that they're trying to wrap their heads around. Right, and you're, I'm sure you're absolutely right, is that they're ducking right now because they're just hoping everybody's focusing on this uh, conservative issue as well. Uh, Mercedes, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Uh, Good luck. That's Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News and host of the West Block in Ottawa. Well, we want to talk a little bit more today about a very big discussion we had on the show yesterday. Remember we were talking about Surrey and how their city council in that city had voted to make it illegal to sleep overnight in RVs and campers on city streets. And we wanted to know, like, why that is. What was the big deal here? How many complaints had they gotten? Well, councillors who were against that move were complaining that the language in the amended bylaw kind of bordered on the offensive. It doesn't make any mention as to what people who live in their RVs are actually supposed to do or what services the city is prepared to use to help those people. And a lot of this played out for you live as we were talking on the airwaves yesterday, in particular when we talked with Surrey City Councillor Doug Elford. He was one of the councillors who voted for this. He was very much in support of making it illegal to sleep overnight in RVs and campers on city streets. And boy, I tell you, we had put this conversation out there on social media. It generated such a response. It was crazy. Here is a small sample of our conversation that we had yesterday on the show and a reason I think it would get a very good idea about why it is uh, it generated so much attention. And it starts with one of the questions that I had for Councillor Elford. So what is being put in place, though, Councillor Elford, to help people? Because I don't think people sleep in their RVs willingly because they want to. In terms of uh, you're talking about what options for these people? Yeah, like if you're telling people you can't sleep in your RV and potentially they are homeless, what does what does the city do then at that point? Do you just tell them to move on or how do you help them? Well, tell them to move on, I guess. Um, you don't, we don't care want where they them, would go? Uh, I don't want them polluting our environment. And, and that's one of the main issues whoa, that whoa, I whoa, have. Whoa. These are Surrey residents and you don't want them polluting your environment if they don't have a home? I don't want them... Now, in Vancouver, for example, we've experienced, when I had this file, I was environmental officer for the city of Vancouver, and I had this file, and what I experienced was a high volume of uh, pollution at these clusters. 
solid waste and liquid waste issues. And that's a real concern of mine. You know, every time I hear it, I still can't quite believe that he worded it that way because, I mean, he certainly had lots of opportunities to say, no, no, here, this is what I meant. I didn't mean it that way. I meant it this way. And it still didn't happen. Now, that prompted a lot of comments online and on our buzz line. Here is just a, a sample one call that we received. I just heard Councillor Alfred. I'm embarrassed. I honestly thought troglodytes from three centuries ago had finally disappeared. The, the nerve of what he said is an insult to anybody with a brain. Absolute insult. Councillor, resign. Give it up. You are an embarrassment. So as I mentioned, that's just one of many, many calls like that that we received on our buzz line yesterday, not to mention the emails and the tweets that we got on this conversation. We wanted to talk a little bit more about this, like putting this in perspective. Like, is this is this normally how the city behaves or what would the city do even in years past? How would the city approach this situation? So just before we came on the air today, I had the chance to speak with the former mayor of Surrey about this, Diane Watts. And here's our conversation on it. Well, Diane Watts, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Now, you heard some of those comments. And, like, what do you think when you hear that? Well, I mean, clearly they're looking at it through a very different lens. And it's... it's, well, quite shocking, frankly, because the issue is around people sleeping in their vehicles or sleeping in, in a camper. And I understand, you know, there, there may be single vehicles and then there's you know, a group of people that come together and probably for safety purposes. Um, and then they leave in the morning. But you have to address it as a homelessness issue. You bring in uh, people from, you know, bring in some outreach workers. You bring in some people from from housing. You bring in, you know, uh, maybe somebody that wants to partner with an that already has an existing RV park. And, you know, we've got tons of them in Surrey. So there's different options how to approach it. And it has to be approached through the lens of this is a homelessness issue. How do we deal with it? It's cold out. Uh, winter's just, you know, it's coming upon us very quickly. And so it has to be dealt with through that lens, not through uh, legislation and, you know, dealing with it and not dealing with the root cause, but legislating the problem away or trying to because it's not going to go away. Do you, when you look back now too, during your time as Surrey's mayor, do you think, were there signs of this happening? Were there things that could have been done maybe to prevent this? Well, we had a very robust, um, homelessness action uh, plan in place. We had set up the, the homelessness uh, foundation, and so and we worked very closely with outreach workers, BC Housing. So we had a very robust program, and we would make sure that people got housed, and uh, we never let up on it. So this is a this is a new phenomenon. Um, obviously, because the the issues aren't being dealt with uh, as well as you can see, it's not being dealt with as a homelessness issue. It's being dealt with as a bylaw issue. So um, there's got to be measures put in place, without a doubt, because it's only going to exacerbate the problem and create a larger problem. And uh, and you can't have that. You've got to make sure that you're you're uh, reaching out to the homelessness population and trying to uh, make sure that they have housing and shelter. Now, in your opinion, though, you know, in your time as mayor as well, a couple of dozen complaints, 27 complaints in one year. Does that does that mean that council deals deals with it like this? Well, and I mean, clearly, I, I can only look at it through the time I was there and it, and it wasn't an issue. And if there was a complaint that someone was parking too long and, you know, they were they were living there and throwing their dishwater out, you know, out on the lawn, on somebody's lawn, then, you know, bylaws would go and we we deal with it. But we call in. Um, other folks in the social service uh, realm uh, to deal with it. And it's like, okay, how can we help you? What do you need? And um, we would deal with it in that fashion. And so it's not about legislating the issue away because it doesn't go away. But this is clearly a problem when you say like all over Metro Vancouver right now, do you hear about this from other communities dealing with this homelessness issue? 
Well, you know, I think that people that, and it's the affordability issue. I mean, people can't afford rent. They can't afford, you know, uh, to, to purchase a home. There may be, you know, they, there are several reasons why people don't go into shelters. So they're thinking, okay, I'll get an RV and I'll, and, you know, this is kind of my contained space. And so it's just a matter of, okay, if that's, if that's your choice and that's the only, only avenue you have, how do we do it in a way, and that's what I'm saying, partnering with the RV folks uh, or, or setting something up. There, there's a thousand ways to deal with the issue, but we have to deal with the issue because we're seeing that, uh, you know, with the affordability issue, there's more and more people that um, cannot afford rent or, uh, or they just don't have any other options, and sometimes going into a shelter is not an option either. All right, Diane, listen, thank you so much for your time on this today. My pleasure. That's Diane Watts, the former mayor of Surrey, weighing in on the current debate happening there about their new bylaw amendment that they passed this week that now makes it illegal to sleep overnight in RVs and campers on city streets. And as you heard her describe it, a very kind of different way of dealing with this situation in years past. It makes you wonder why... Why didn't those counselors just say that? Well, you've probably seen the pictures by now. You've heard about it. But now we're going to talk in detail about what is being planned for the end of the Burrard Street Bridge on the other side of downtown Vancouver. There's an indigenous-led urban development project that is set to go up there. We're talking 6,000 units, 11 towers, and it's all being developed by Squamish Nation. That is Squamish Nation land. They are going to move forward with this. We wanted to talk more about this project, find out how quickly this is all going to happen. Joining us now is Squamish Nation Councillor Haseelam to talk about this. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, so tell me a bit about the project, first of all. Sure. Um, So the land is about 11 acres. The Broad Street Bridge actually trespasses over the land. The land underneath is still owned by the nation and so it's 11 acres it's located on an empty vacant lot it's generally a parking lot most of the time um, but we're proposing a real estate development that is largely rental um, to provide so much needed rental for the city um, and as you mentioned 6,000 units 11 towers um, that's an increase of some of the earlier conversations that we had during the preliminary design but based off of our feedback from our, our people, our Squamish members, um, that they really want to see that if we're going to use our assets like land for economic development, that we really need to push um, how much we're able to create the value off that land. Right. And plus, are you talking about also creating long-term revenue as well, something that continues to bring money in, so you're not just going to sell it? Yeah, I think that um, for somebody like an Indigenous community where we're looking at providing opportunities for people who aren't even here yet, like our future generations, uh, rental provides a long-term sustainable revenue stream for us, um, and that makes much more sense than, say, just building a bunch of strata condos and selling them all off. Um, but it's also dictated a lot largely by what the market is. We have a, a 1% vacancy rate in lots of Vancouver. Most of Vancouver, some places, it's even below that. And it's really hard for people to get into some secure tenured uh, housing. And we think rental is going to be much needed in the city. Where does the inspiration come for this? There's lots of different areas, I guess, that you could look at, places like False Creek. and so. But is there an idea behind what Squamish Nation wants this to look like and be like for people who live there? Yeah, we actually, we've, we're proposing some really interesting urban design concepts that we're able to do because the Squamish Nation is the government in control and not the city of Vancouver. And so typically in Vancouver, you have this kind of podium and tower structure that you see everywhere. And what we're proposing instead is that it's actually, we're going to forego the podiums and we're actually just going to build these towers that kind of come in from the sky and land on the ground, which then allows us to activate the ground space. So out of the 11 acres, almost 80% of it is going to stay as um, public publicly accessible park space and community amenity space. And that's really to create a sense of community there. When people are coming out of their rental uh, apartments, they come into the ground level and there's some shops and some retail, but there's also park space so that now it's activated in a way that it's lively, it's fun, it's interesting, there's things happening. Maybe there's events in the summertime. Now we have a part of the city. When we think about really interesting parts of the city, this is going to be a place that people will want to go um, because we've actually built it in a way that makes it interesting and exciting to be. So what won't there be if you're doing things differently what do you envision not being there um i guess 
some of it is around I, one of the areas that's actually really fascinating for us is and it's been reported on the media is that we are looking at because we don't have any requirements about mandatory minimum parking um, we've only included 10 percent parking on the 6,000 units um, which might seem uh, which will be an interesting conversation for people but for us when we look at rental and we look at the future of the city and we look at the fact that we're in a climate emergency we need to start building our buildings differently and we we think that the future of our city buildings is not going to be investing in these big parkades that are going to sit empty in 40 years because most people are leaving their cars and taking transit or biking or walking so let's build for the future of where we're going but also let's create a market that all the people who either don't have cars right now or are willing to give up their cars and live downtown you know people in new west to say i'll give up my car if i can live 10 minutes from downtown because that's part of the lifestyle i want these are the type of developments that we're going to offer um, which means that we are able to both build more units because we're not having to build the parking it also means that the cost for the units goes down significantly it costs 80 to one hundred twenty thousand dollars per parking stall the deeper you go so we're actually able to take cars off of the road because now we're offering a particular type of housing product that is going to attract certain people to live in it so how what do you envision in terms of affordability when it comes to these rents because we know that even with the city of vancouver what they consider affordable a lot of people still wouldn't consider affordable no and it's interesting like so the 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 2016 uh, housing census the gross uh, family median income in in that part of vancouver is one hundred and six thousand dollars. and so when we're talking about affordable rental um, the vast majority of the rental is going to be much more affordable than any of the houses that are currently there um or or the most of the, the community that currently lives there but we're also talking about some of the financing options with CMHC, which has received a lot of government funding to help incentivize rental development, but also to incorporate some affordability numbers into the development. So we're definitely talking about that. As a part of our commitment to our members, we're also talking about uh, allocating a certain amount of units to Squamish members so that we can actually bring a community of people back to Kitsilano, that there will be a Squamish community in the city again. Uh, and that's a huge, not just the, the, the revenue stream, but actually just having a Squamish community back in Kitsilano is a huge opportunity of pride and connection that I think we're really excited about. So how many how many units would that be then? Um, that's largely going to depend on where we land on how many units will be rental how many might be strata leasehold because right. that's going to dictate it by the market as well as financing that we obtain. But we are talking about a few hundred units that will likely be allocated for Squamish members at below market or subsidized uh, rates. A few hundred out of 6,000. Yeah. Okay, so even the ones, so not everything is going to be rental. As you said, there will be a small number of some strata units, but again, those yeah. won't be freehold. Those will be leasehold. Yeah. Is that a 99-year lease? You yeah. envision that? Yeah. It'll be similar to a lot of products that you see or a lot of housing options that you see like at UBC and other places. Okay. And so there's still a negotiation that you have to do with the city of Vancouver in terms of services, but the city says, hey, they are in support of this. Mayor Kennedy Stewart has said that. Do you envision any issues with any of this? Well, I think reasonably the, the city is going to be asking questions, and I think residents are reasonably asking, like, okay, how's you know, it's it's a lot of people, it's a, a lot of uh, development, right? How is it going to pay for not just as basic services like uh, hydro and and sewage and stuff like that, but you get into things like garbage, policing, yeah. libraries, community space, civic center, whatever, all of that. Um, the way it works is that, and, and the city of Vancouver already has this, um, and municipalities do this already, they do service agreements with First Nations. So the nation would then buy those services from the city of Vancouver for the residents. Right. And we would incorporate the cost, not just of the sewage and the water, but all these other services as well. So then we're getting charged a bill every year by the city of Vancouver to provide those services for our residents on our lands. But then we're also, the First Nations have the authority to tax our own residents, no matter who it is, uh, on our reserve lands at property tax levels that are comparable to the city of Vancouver. Right. So we collect property taxes as a nation. Then we pay a service to the city of Vancouver. And so really, all of the people that would be living in this would, in, a, in essence, be paying property taxes just like any other resident of Vancouver. It's just transferring through us to the city of Vancouver and paying for those services. So we'll engage in a conversation with Vancouver to negotiate where we land on terms of the exact amount. That's largely going to depend on how many units and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the city of Vancouver 
Vancouver is very encouraged by what we're proposing, largely because they've made their own commitments around how much rental they want to provide for the city. They made their own commitments about how much housing they want to build in the city for, for uh, at affordable rates. Um, but also they've made lots of commitments around reconciliation and supporting Indigenous people. And so I think that the city over the last 10 years has built a very strong relationship with us and we're uh, heartened by the comments that we've been seeing so far. So what is the timeline like for this? How quickly is this going to move forward? We are going to a referendum with Squamish Nation members on December 10th to seek their approval on the land use and the structure of the business partnership. Um, That's our first step. Once we get through that, or if we get through that and our members support us moving in this direction, we'll be doing meetings with members throughout November on that. Um, Then we'll continue on with the service agreement negotiations and the business um, negotiations with the partner. And then our hope is to, our current timeline is to begin construction sometime in early 2021 with all of the buildings uh, built by 2026. Ooh, that's fast. It's very fast. That is very fast. Will there be any opportunities for the public to see more of this vision and see what is entailed here or even to offer any kind of feedback? Absolutely. I think our our approach is that we want to engage the public meaningfully and we want to do it in good faith and that uh, our first step is to go to our members because we've got to get that approval. Yeah. But once we get through that, we do want to design an engagement process where we'll go to the public and actually engage in that conversation around feedback and input and showing the full concepts and showing the trade-offs, right? Showing what we're giving back to the city yeah. um, by doing this. And I think we want to engage in that in good faith and, and entertain that whole conversation because I think there's a lot of people that are excited about this for a variety of reasons. There's lots of people might have concerns because they don't know all the information yet. And I think we want to do a full disclosure. We want to do that full conversation. We want to invite that. And I think that we can be leaders in mirroring existing um, practices that the city does around engagement on real estate projects. But we might also add to it. You know, there's a lot of historical context in this site. Uh, Squamish people were living there up until 1913, and then they were forcibly removed by the provincial and federal governments at the request of the city of Vancouver and the Parks Board. And so our people were evicted from their homes illegally by the government because they didn't want uh, Indigenous people living in a city at the time. So when we talk about the context of us coming home and us developing our lands, there's a huge amount of storytelling to happen, a lot of information to share. And I think we want to engage in all of that and really celebrate the opportunity to do this in a different way. I look forward to talking more about it. Thank you so much for joining us today. For sure. Thank you. That is Haselem, Squamish Nation Councillor, talking about the big new development that's going to be happening on Squamish Nation land just on the other side of the Burrard Street Bridge. Well, if you live in the city of Vancouver, watch your mail because empty homes declarations are going to be sent out in the mail starting today. Now, Melanie Kerr is a Director of Financial Services at the city of Vancouver, and she talked about how the empty homes tax got started. The original uh, purpose for the for the empty homes tax was to try to encourage uh, property owners with uh, vacant properties to rent out their properties and, and increase the housing supply because we do have a, uh, a bit of a housing crisis in Vancouver right now. Oh, just a bit of one, right. But has the empty homes tax actually been successful in attaining any of that goal? Well, I definitely think we're we're seeing a lot of um, trends in the empty homes tax numbers. We'll be releasing our empty homes tax annual report later this month, which shows a lot of um, data from the uh, first couple of years of the empty homes tax. And we're definitely seeing some, uh, you know, trends that are, are making us very optimistic that it's working as, it, as intended. Okay. So if you're a homeowner, though, what are the basics that you need to know today? The empty homes tax declaration opens today and uh, owners should be uh, looking to in their mailboxes over the coming weeks as we'll be uh, mailing them out in batches over the next couple of weeks. And if you are signed up for online access, uh, you can uh, log in and declare almost immediately. All right. So there are still some people, believe it or not, who actually didn't file for last year, didn't fill out the form and let people let the city know kind of what their status is. And Melanie Kerr also has some words of advice for those people. Certainly, we'd like to, you know, encourage everybody who has not yet declared for 2018 to get their declaration in quickly and also encourage everyone to sign up for online access. It's definitely the easiest way to receive all of your uh, property tax and empty homes tax information uh, without having to worry about waiting for the mail. All right. So that is Melanie Kerr. She is with the Director of Financial Services at the City of Vancouver. But we wanted to talk more about the empty homes tax. So they're entering into their third year of this tax. But a lot has changed, right, since the tax came into effect. It was brought in by the previous uh, Vision Vancouver-dominated council. Now you've got a whole new situation. Has anything changed? Has the feeling toward it changed? What could be happening on this? How has it been working? So we're joined now by Frances Bula, who writes for the Globe and Mail extensively on City Hall issues. And she's also, you know, been talking about the empty homes tax as well. 
Well, Francis, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. First off, we're talking about the empty homes tax today. How successful do you think this measure has been for the city of Vancouver? Well, I think there's two ways of measuring success. One is, it is it a political success? And I would say, by and large, yes, because people support it. Every poll shows that uh, and so on. Um, and then is it a financial success? You know, I'm waiting to see more results because the only thing that we've had uh, since it started, the first year it was collected was 2017. So we had a report sometime in 2018 that, um, you know, gave some indication of what was going on. Uh, but at that point, they said, well, we're on, we're supposedly going to get $38 million in revenue, but we've only actually collected $20 million and we're still in, you know, auditing people and in dispute with, uh, you know, some of them and so on. So I, I, we're all waiting for uh, the next uh, report to come out, which is going to come out um, uh, around November 19th, I think, uh, sort of saying, well, what ha- what happened with the rest of 2017 and um, what what happened in 2018? Like, did they collect more revenue? Were there more disputes? Were there more audits? You know, things like that. Right. Now, this was a measure of the last government. And of course, this council is completely different. But does this council, do you think, continue to support this? Do they like the empty homes tax? I haven't heard anyone suggest it should be rolled back. I mean, we have heard about other things that um, the, you know, these councillors have, you know, talked about rolling back, like, you know, duplex zoning or, uh, you know, uh, rental incentives and things like that. Uh, but I've, I haven't heard, actually heard anyone talk about uh, rolling back the empty homes tax. Hmm. And they are still collecting. I think it's yep. politically popular. Yeah. Huh. So they are collecting money. People are paying their empty homes tax because it seemed like it was such a steep price, you know, $30,000 mm-hmm. for some cases, and yet people are paying it. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess so if they've decided that, they, that they're not going to rent uh, out their units. Now, I hear a lot of anecdotal stories about people scrambling to rent out at any price, you know, so they don't have to pay that tax. Um, but uh, no, I, I mean, and I think uh, they have to. They, they, it's not really an option. Once, if they can't prove to the city that they're not empty homeowners, and you know, the last year when I went to fill out my form, I, I happened to go be at, at City Hall, so I went and did it there, and I could hear some poor Filipino man on the, you know, at the table next to me saying, "But I run a business here, and I have 30 employees, and this and that, and everything else," trying to. Um, not get charged the tax. I don't know how that all worked out. But, um, you know, ultimately, if the city decides you don't have the documentation or the evidence to prove that you're living there, um, you have to pay it just like you have to pay any other kind of property tax. Like it's not really an option. And it was so interesting, though, wasn't it? Because in the beginning, it just seemed like, oh, wow, this new tax. And there was people who were upset about it. But you're right. It does still it does seem to be politically popular. Like people seem to have accepted this as something that is needed in the city. Is that the impression that you get? Mm hmm. Uh, Yeah, I mean, politically, it is very popular. Just, you know, I think it's an expression of people's concern about the housing situation. And there is a little you know, sort of counter movement of people who don't like it because they say it's kind of unfairly targeting, you know, Canadians, retired Canadians, someone who's living in White Rock and has a little kind of pied-à-terre in downtown Vancouver, living on the Sunshine Coast and coming in to visit grandchildren and, and go for medical appointments. And so there has been some, you know, concern about that uh, by a certain segment, but it certainly does not seem to be the majority concern. Uh, You know, people, it it just appears in every, from all the public reaction, every survey that's done that by and large, people are supportive of the idea of people, uh, of of owners of properties who are not here full-time, who are using it as a second home or an investment or you know, a part-time residence or whatever, they pay something extra. Right. And of course, affordable housing and availability has been such a huge issue. Has that changed with mm-hmm. this particular council? Like, does this council seem to be addressing this any more or less? Like, what is your assessment of that? Of affordability? Yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, I, I think that's the number one concern because, um, you know, th- those who vote against 
um, housing projects uh, that have come before the city, like Adrian Carr or Jean Swanson, it's, uh, when they express why they're doing it, part of it is always this isn't affordable enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, that uh, there is also a concern about displacement of renters. I would say that's actually the biggest change I've seen is that there is so much general concern on council about displacement of renters that the city has revised its policies to demand more mitigation efforts from any developer who's displacing a tenant to the point where developers are telling me we will not buy or we'll seriously hesitate before buying a property that has tenants on it. Really? So that is a big change. Mm-hmm. It you- is. I, I would say that's the, the the most significant thing that I've noticed in terms of a different attitude of this council compared to the last council. Hmm. And you also had a huge story in the Global Mail this week about the big development uh, being proposed by the Squamish Nation down at the end of the Burrard Street Bridge. That's going to dramatically change it. And I guess the city, city can't really do anything about it, can they? Nope. Uh, I mean, the city, they are going to have to, con- the, the Squamish are going to have to contract with the city to, uh, you know, that's a bare patch of land under the broad yeah. bridge there. There's no sewer lines, no water lines, no roads, really. Uh, so they are going to have to contract with the city. And so maybe the city has a little bit of leverage. But quite frankly, if they try to hold up an Indigenous development and nitpick them to death, I don't think that'll go over particularly well. Um so no, the city really has no leverage. The, it, usually, the way things work in Vancouver is if someone comes in with a pitch for to rezone Oak Ridge or, you know, build a tower here or there, the city says, okay, well we'll give you extra density. In return, you have to give us stuff, including mm-hmm. you know some subsidized housing units or something like that, social housing units. Well, they can't do that with the Squamish because the Squamish can just, they can go to 110 stories if they want. You know, right. there really is. I, I mean, I think it might be only airport regulations that might stop them from going too high. Um, so the city doesn't have any leverage that way. Uh, I mean, I think they're going to be talking to them and the Squamish, uh, I think, to while they sort of have they have this position that you know it's not our job it's not our band's job to provide subsidized housing for the rest of you in Vancouver right um uh but i think that probably for their own image and uh, they'll they'll probably try to you know have a mix of type of rentals in those buildings right do you think this is a bit of a precursor to what we might see out of the Jericho lands as well no, because they're not really similar, because Jericho is subject to city zoning rules. Ah, okay. So this so, is very different. Yeah, yeah. So um, the that's owned by what's called MST, like the three the three bands and nations together, Musqueam, um, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish. Uh, and they're, they're uh, partly, they're working with the federal government as well, like the federal government still plays a role in that one, in the Heatherlands, you know, the old RCMP area behind Eric Hamber School, and also two bands who own the, broad, the big liquor distribution branch site on Broadway. So those are three big Indigenous-owned properties, but they are subject to city zoning laws. Right. Overall, though, you've got these big projects where a lot, it seems like, is going to be changing in Vancouver over the next five, ten years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, like big chunks of empty land um, that, you know, I think everyone has an interest in maximizing for, you know, to provide housing in the city. So true. Francis, thank you. Thank you. That is Frances Beulah. She, of course, writes for the Global Mail. She's their urban issues and politics writer. She covers a lot of city hall issues. You know, times have changed, especially in the way we view things like sexual assault. And yes, the Me Too movement has had a lot to do with this. We ask a lot more questions now, but why? Why, for instance, aren't police more aggressive when they look into and investigate sexual assaults? We have been reading about this. It was a great series in the Globe and Mail recently called Unfounded uh, by investigative journalist Robin Doolittle. Well, she has now built on that work, and she's writing about all of this in her latest book called 
had it coming. She examines what she calls rape culture and looks at how we, all of us, have changed when it comes to our reaction to stories in the past versus stories today. And writing it, she says, was a personal awakening for her. Let's hear more about this now. Robin Doolittle joins us. Robin, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about your book. How has the reception been? Oh, man, what a question. It's been really fascinating. I've been doing this stuff for about a month. And the whole book is about trying to bring these conversations that people are having in private with girlfriends that they trust into the public. And I was really unsure of how that was going to play out. But it's great. People want to talk about, yeah, consent is is complicated. Let's get into the muck here on these issues. That's why I asked the question, because when I was reading the book, I that was the thought that I had, too. Like, you start by telling the Kobe Bryant story, which I think is so fascinating because I've had that same kind of thought process happen to me as well. And you wonder, are we the only ones that are thinking this? But clearly from your book, that is not the case. Everybody is rethinking the way they used to view these issues. Exactly. Uh, you know, the book, I'm spending a lot of time asking people to think about rape myths and stereotypes, like these outdated ideas that we all harbor about women and gender and power and victims and sex, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when I was doing research for the book, I came across that Kobe Bryant case again. And it was crazy because, you know, when I was reading the details of that case, there was a lot of evidence that something happened. There was blood on his shirt. She had vaginal trauma, et cetera. And I remember when I heard about it when I was 18 thinking, well, what did this girl think going to a hotel room with an NBA player at night? And like, that's messed up. Why was that my thought? That's rape culture. And we have to unpack why we hold these views. And it was reinforced at the time, right? Time and time again with the coverage. Yeah, that that was wild too, going through the media coverage at the time. I think the, the headline in the Los Angeles Times was something like, Kobe Bryant's accuser is an emotional party girl. Like, you know, it's a little dog whistle, like, like this girl had it coming, like this girl was, you know, asking for it. That that's that's what rape culture is. And, you know, also with that case, the court staff um leaked private information about this girl to the media by accident. They 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 emailed journalists a closed door discussion about her sexual history. Um a, a tabloid ran a full page photo of her with her name saying you know, did she lie? Like, this is crazy. This was only 2003, not that long ago. Do you think this would happen again? Do you think a case like that would happen today, given everything that's happened in the last couple of years? No, uh, I th- I think that the conversation would be different yeah. about it. And that's really what's, you know, different about me too. Not when you say again, I, I think it is completely possible that an allegation like this would happen right. again, but the conversation would be different. And I think that's the real difference. What's changed between Kobe Bryant and say a Gian Gomeshi or a Bill Cosby or the Harvey Weinstein, it's, it's social media. It's given everyone a platform. Right. Uh, this grew out of a series that you did called Unfounded, which was so fascinating that which looked into the statistics right across the country of police forces and the number of sexual assault cases that they actually investigate. There were some shocking statistics in there. I mean, we don't necessarily have a problem of people coming forward. People are coming forward. It's what is happening once they come forward. Exactly. Yeah, I was. I, I became immersed in this topic beginning in 2015. At the time, everyone was talking about Gian Gomeshi and that the justice system was failing sexual assault victims. And I'm an investigative journalist at the Globe and Mail, and I thought, well, I wonder if that's true. I mean, it feels true, but is it? And what I was essentially trying to do is figure out if we could quantify rape culture. Can we put a number to it? And that's where I collected statistics from more than 800 police jurisdictions and found that one in five cases were being dismissed as unfounded, which means it's base or, or baseless or false in the officer's mind. And this was more than mm-hmm. twice the rate for, for physical assault. And, and why was that? And that gets back to just these outdated ideas, I think, that police officers were hearing allegations from women and not sure what to make of it and thinking, well, it's just sex. Maybe this isn't so serious or she was drinking. I don't know what to make of it. But shockingly, as you just said, though, if it was just a physical assault without the sex in it, the numbers were different. Exactly. Yeah, they were dramatically less. And and physical assault uh, is the most comparable crime. It's a crime on a person. And, and physical assault is often, you know, one story against another story. Same thing. Yeah. So what's the difference? I, I looked into 54 specific cases. And what I found was just these one mass confusion about Canadian consent laws. 
Canada has some of the most progressive laws in the world. The laws are not the problem. It's that they're not being enforced. And why aren't they being enforced? And this is all kind of tying into what we're exploring now with Me Too. These these ideas that we have around, you know, how victims are supposed to behave. I spend some time in the book talking about mm. trauma. And it's really important to understand this because, um, you know, let's say someone is being assaulted and they don't scream for help if someone's nearby. That, that seems illogical. Like, why wouldn't you do that? And it's not until you unpack the science behind right. what's happening in the body when someone's truly terrified for their life that it makes sense why someone might not scream or right. run. You also looked at, like, as you said, so many police forces where there, and I know there were particular police forces across the country that really stood out for some questionable statistics and including some here in BC. Yeah. And, and that was what was interesting is that uh, there wasn't really no pattern. It, it's like just, huh. you can have a police service of a very similar size and demographics side by side, and they would have dramatically different numbers. And I think a lot of it comes down to the training that officers like do officers here's a big thing i interviewed Mm -hmm. a lot of police officers police officers are not for the most part bad people right this i think of course not yeah right it's just a lack of resources or training or understanding a lot of this stuff wasn't malicious like i spend some time in the book interviewing robin camp this is the judge that famously said you know why didn't she just keep her knees together if she didn't want to be penetrated and when i was reading the transcript of that case it's not that this guy was, I didn't see malice. I just saw ignorance. He just didn't know. And and he was put on a very public trial, um, disciplinary hearing, and he went through an evolution of thought by reaching out to these feminist legal scholars and mentors to understand where his ideas had gone wrong. But it's so disappointing to think that somebody like that who was appointed to the bench without having had to have any kind of training. So here he is hearing sexual assault cases, but he knows he doesn't have that training. So why wouldn't somebody like that go, I need to learn more about this if I'm going to rule on this? Well, this is all part of what we're trying to understand now in this moment is like, why is it that an oil and gas judge can be on the bench hearing sexual assault trials? There is no way to force sitting judges to have training, specialized training. And you must have been disappointed then. I mean, I know Ron Ambrose did a great job in bringing forth that bill that would kind of make it mandatory for that kind of training. Right. We interviewed her several times about it, and then it died in the Senate before it, yes. the election was called. It's it's nuts. And I mean, there were such so many common sense things in, in Ron's bill, such as um, that verdicts need to be written down. Like, and, and that sounds like such an obvious thing, but when you're a journalist, so many of these cases come out because a journalist has spotted them. Yeah. Like with Robin Camp, um, that was two legal scholars that saw that and it was written about in the Globe and Mail and then there was a hearing. Robin Camp is not an outlier. Like this is very common, all these the time, misconceptions. Yeah. In my reporting, I uncovered many judges with problematic views, um, but it was because I was able to get the transcript uh, and, and see those. But so many cases, they don't have to write it down. It's just one of those odd little fixes that I think we're moving forward. That right. would be an easy way. So when you talk about all the results and things that have happened as a, you know, because of the investigations that you did and what you is there something that's particularly rewarding to you where you go, I'm so glad this has now happened? I mean, from the Unfounded series, police services have had a massive overhaul of training and oversight. And that's really great. I, I think with me too, we all... If you know, if you polled the country, are you you know, are you pro sexual assault? Are you pro sexual harassment? No, obviously people are going to say no. Yeah. Where we differ is what constitutes the bad behavior. Where what what is crossing the line? And uh, you know, as I said, like things like consent, things like do people who have committed harm deserve a second chance? Understanding trauma, the role of social media, due process, this myth of false accusations, where that's coming from. All of these things are really complicated. They're not black and white. We need to have these discussions. And what I'm happy that I'm seeing is people having these conversations because that's the only way we're going to move forward. Like today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's Robin Doolittle. Her book is called Had It Coming? What's Fair in the Age of Hashtag Me Too? It's a very thoughtful look at all of these issues. You should definitely check that out. I think we have a tendency to think in this country that, you know, birth control is available to everyone. If a woman wants it, if she needs it, she can get it. That isn't always the case, actually. According to some new UBC research that was done, they say that young, low-income women in Canada are less likely to use things like the pill 
And the findings also suggest they may not actually be able to afford access to contraceptives. We're going to talk more about this now with the help of Elizabeth Nethery, who's the lead author of the study and a PhD student in the UBC School of Population and Public Health. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Did any did these results surprise you when you kind of got in dug into the details of it? Um, a little bit. I mean, I wasn't sure that we would actually be able to see uh, sort of an income effect, which is what we found in this study. So just the effect that, that we saw, which was that low-income women, as you mentioned, and those who live in a household with a lower uh, household income are, are less likely to be using some of the more effective methods of contraception, uh, including some that are the more expensive methods, things like the pill. Right. So is it is that the co- is that the barrier? Is it the cost of those contraceptives? Well, certainly it seems like that. Um, that was what we found as, as an association. This study, we really weren't we weren't asking people explicitly what the barriers were. So this was a, a an association we found with income and the types of contraceptive methods people are using, and it just happens that this really tracks with the cost of those methods. So something like the pill can be between, you know, 15 to $40 a month. Right. Those condoms are, you know, much cheaper and almost can be had for free. Right. So then what were some of the other interesting findings that you came across? Uh, some other interesting things really is just that, you know, we, we can kind of take from this is that uh, there was, you know, different methods that people were, were using um, that, that really did track with their income. So um, in, in, in some cases, uh, people who were using multiple methods as well were more likely to be in the higher income group. And uh, this, again, I mean, we weren't, unfortunately, the study wasn't able to talk about IUDs, which are one of the most effective methods and also one of the most expensive methods. Um, we don't have good data on that. So I can't really comment on that one. Right. But essentially, it sounds like what you're saying, though, is if you have more money, you essentially have more access to contraceptives in this country. Yeah, it definitely does seem like that. And that's, you know, we we are a country with, you know, what we want to call a universal health care system. And when we see inequities like this in terms of access, it's concerning and it makes, you know, makes us want to talk about how we can reduce those barriers. Right. Was that right across the country when you looked at it? Yeah, this was uh, data from all across Canada. Now, that does that seem surprising as well? There were no differences in terms of was it easier to access these contraceptives in, in other provinces? Uh, we didn't look particularly province by province um, in this study, although we did look in particular at Quebec because they have uh, sort of a type of universal um, drug coverage in a way. So you're mandated to either have a public plan if, if you don't have private insurance um, and so in theory, everybody should have some uh, prescription drug coverage. But what we found is that even in Quebec, uh, there was still an income effect. So there were still people, there was still a difference by income. Um, overall, the rates of birth control use were higher in Quebec. <laughs> right. Well, I guess you could see why. Um, so when it comes to then having, you said like, you know, Canada says we have universal health access. Does this show that we don't? And what's it like in other countries? Yeah, so, it, I mean, I think it's hard for us to say exactly that this is, um, you know, as I mentioned, 100% because of cost. There's probably other barriers that contribute to this as well. But, yeah, other countries that are um, that do have universal health care also often have universal contraceptive coverage and or some kind of universal pharmacare. So think countries like the U.K., New Zealand, and Australia, um, they'll all have universal coverage. Right, and yet we don't. How expensive then is it for birth control, the most effective kinds? So, as I mentioned, one of the most effective kinds of birth control is IUDs, um, and they can be—they uh, have an upfront cost, so they last for quite a long time, five to ten years. But upfront, they can range from you know about eighty dollars to um, almost four hundred dollars. And uh, things like the pill, which is you know quite effective, but there's a monthly cost. So the, again, it depends on what kind of pill you're using um, and whether there's dispensing fees, like uh, pharmacist dispensing fees, but they can range from 15 to $40 a month. And again, if you're you know, on a fixed income or low income person, that, that could be quite a, an expensive um, thing to put money towards. Right. And so uh, do you think then they just, they just don't, they don't use that? Uh, I mean, again, it's, it's hard to say, you know, I think there's a lot of other barriers as well. We know that people in remote and rural communities also sometimes have 
trouble accessing a provider that can can offer them the full range of contraceptive options as well. So there, there can be multiple barriers, but yeah, definitely cost can be one of those. And you also looked at, I understand, like the group of young women who were actually at risk for unintended pregnancies. Yeah, yeah. So whenever you're studying um, contraceptive use, it's really important to be talking about people who are not trying to get pregnant. Right. <laughs> um, so that's one of the um, important features of the studies where we're looking only in this study at uh, young people, so 15 to 24 year olds, um, and a specific population is those that said they were not trying to get pregnant. Um, so, because by contrast, if you just looked at contraceptive use among all people, um, you know, that a certain proportion of the population is obviously going to be, you know, actively trying to get pregnant or right. don't care or, you know. So among yeah. the ones then with the that at-risk group for unintended pregnancies, mm-hmm. what type of contraception were they using? Yeah, so we found, I mean, the good news is that in this study, um, the majority were using some form of contraception. So about 86% um, were using a method of contraception. Um, but that also means that roughly about three out of every 20 people uh, in this in this young female group uh, were not using anything, despite saying they were trying to avoid a pregnancy. And uh, then the other methods that people were using were birth control pills, again, um, uh Condoms only is one of the methods we looked at. We looked at whether people were using dual methods, so whether people were using uh, both birth control and condoms. And we also looked at injections. So that's something like uh, Depo-Fivera, which is an injection that you can get every three months. Right. And that also can have a cost associated with it as well. Right. So essentially, though, there is still a large number of women in that at-risk group who are not using the most effective types of contraception. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, we definitely found. And what we also found was that that really differed by income. Um, so again, the lower income people were more likely to be using no methods at all or condoms only. Interesting. Listen, Elizabeth, thank you so much for explaining it to us. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a great day. You too. That's Elizabeth yeah. Nethery, the lead author of this study and a PhD student at the UBC School of Population and Public Health.